Good morning. Welcome. It is good to be with you this morning. If you're a guest of ours, we are honored to have you with us this morning. I've got to ask, is anybody else struggling with the communion here at the last couple of weeks? Okay, not just... I feel like a family of raccoons over here, me and Martha. The last two weeks trying to get into our... I've got grape juice on my pants. Um, I thought, is this, is this me? Am I, am I this clueless? So, okay, that's, that's reassuring. Okay. Uh, falling under the category of less is more, I want to share with you an uh, advertisement that I ran across advertising a new church that was opening up uh, in, in an area. And here was the ad. Good neighbors, has the heaviness of your old-fashioned church got you down? Try us. We are the new and improved Light Church of the Valley. Studies have shown we have 24% fewer commitments than most churches. We are the home of the 7.5% tithe. We promise 40-minute worship services with 10-minute sermons. Next Sunday's exciting text is the feeding of the 2,500. We have only eight commandments. You get to choose which apply to you. We have just three gospels in our contemporary New Testament sound bites for modern living. We take the offering every other week, except all major credit cards. We're always out in time for you to beat the competition to lunch. We're closed on Super Bowl Sunday. Yes, the new and improved Light Church of the Valley might be just what you're looking for. We are everything you've ever wanted in a church. And less. <laughs> you know, I guess everyone has a different opinion of church, right? Your opinion, your concept of church is probably a little bit different than other people that you know who don't attend church. And maybe a lot of people that you know, maybe some of you, think that you know, the Light Church of the Valley sounds, sounds a little bit uh, impressive, sounds like something that might be attractive. Personally, I'm not interested in some other person's opinion of church. I am going to defer to a much higher authority when we talk about church. And of course, I'm using the word church not as a place where something happens a time or two a week. I'm using that word in the context of the way Scripture uses the word church, the body of Christ, the family of God, the called out. You know, we are the church. And we are spending a few weeks here at the beginning of the year talking about Church, not through the lens of what I think, not through the lens of what you think or what culture tells us. We're trying to take a look at church through the lens of Jesus. I mentioned last week that you know, quite often we look at Jesus through the lens of the church, but I want to take a look at the church through the lens of Jesus. And last week we talked about this thing that happened in Jesus' ministry. We talked about a miracle that Jesus performed in Mark chapter 2, healed the paralytic that was lowered through the roof. And Jesus did something that caused those people to say, we have never seen anything like this before. 
And I mentioned last week that I didn't think it was just the miracle. That's taking nothing away from the miracle of Jesus. But there was something else going on. The way Jesus performed that miracle, the way Jesus treated people, the way Jesus handled that whole situation. There's always more going on in the miracles of Jesus than just the miracle. You remember when he turned the water into wine? It was a pretty amazing thing that he just did. But the text tells us that he thus revealed his glory and that his disciples put their faith in him. So yes, there is the miracle that's happened, but then there is also revealing and receiving and believing. There's always more going on than just the miracle when Jesus would perform a miracle. And then last week we also talked a little bit about the script. The script that the world, our culture, sort of expects us to follow as Christians. That when people find out that you're a Christian... They usually expect you to react and respond in a certain way, and they think they know how that's going to be. When a buzzword gets thrown out there, people expect Christians to react in a certain way. They believe that they know our script. And if they believe that they know our script, then they sort of deem us irrelevant. Now, that doesn't mean our message is irrelevant. That just means that the reality is quite often we as Christians are seen as irrelevant. And that's a problem. Now, we can't exactly fix the, that problem that you know, everyone sees us as relevant because a lot of people you know, have some preconceived notions and there's really not much we can do about it and we didn't have much to do with it. For some people, it's going to take a lot of deeds and a lot of seeds before they start to see Christianity as an alternative that's relevant. And some people never will. But of course, that doesn't stop us from trying to become a more relevant part of the conversation in our culture. And uh, we said last week that there's a direct correlation between a church clinging to, we've never done it that way, and a neighborhood waiting to say, We've never seen anything like that before. What would it take for someone to have an interaction with you, knowing that you're a Christian, on a topic that they're pretty sure they know your script, and have them walk away and say, hmm, we have never seen anything like that before. And I think the answer to that is both simple and incredibly complex. One of my favorite Bible books is the book of 1 John. Uh, one of my favorite statements in 1 John is chapter 4, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. We love because God loved us first. Love first. That's what God does. That's what God, who God is. In fact, John says God is love. And I don't know if you've ever really thought about it this way before, but the very first thing that God did was to love. God could have done a lot of things first, but the first thing he did was love. According to Revelation 13, 8, Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. 
So God didn't create first. He didn't judge first. He didn't condemn, correct, redeem. He didn't do any of those things first. He loved first. For God so loved the world that he gave. God loved the world so much that he gave his son. And Revelation said that happened before the foundation of the world. Which means he loved first. Now, in the script that the world thinks they know, in what the world expects us to say and do, is it love first? Is that what the world respect, expects of Christians? It's not our reputation. Which means we have to work on that. We have to chip away at that. We have to address that one encounter at a time. A physician once said, the best medicine for humans is love. And someone said, what if it doesn't work? And he responded, increase the dose. And we like that. You know, we like those, those little uh, sayings, those you know, things we can put on a, a bumper sticker. Intellectually, we nod our head and said, yeah, that's, that's what I want to do. That's who I want to be. I want to be love first. I want people to see me as love first. But you know, I always quote Mike Tyson when he said, everybody has a plan until they get hit in the face. You know, we have this plan to love first until someone hits us in the face. Until someone does something that is not lovable. Until someone hurts us. And until someone you know, breaks our heart. And then that plan of love first, to quote Mike Tyson, becomes ludicrous, simply ludicrous. <laughs> so, I'm sorry. So how do we pull it off? How do we pull it off? Let's turn to John chapter 15. John chapter 15 is a really famous passage that we know very well. Many of you have this passage memorized, but I want to look at it this morning in this context. This is Jesus speaking. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, but while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Now here comes the next statement that Jesus makes that we don't believe. We know it, and we can quote it, but we don't believe it. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We know that's the inspired word of God. We know that's Jesus making that statement. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And we believe it in our head. But we don't believe it in our gut. We just don't. 
We, we, we believe it intellectually, but you know, in Western civilization, 21st century, that, that, just, that is so counterintuitive to what we've been told and what we've been taught all our lives. That apart from anybody, we can't do anything. It just it doesn't compute with 21st century America. All of our lives, we've been told, hey, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Do it yourself. you got the can-do attitude. And if you need someone to help you, you accept their help until you can help yourself. Because, well, God helps those who help themselves. Which, by the way, is not in the Bible. But the very fabric of our society is built on someone being able to prove their worth by what they do. That's how we prove our worth, right? By what we can accomplish. And if I have to have someone else do something for me, I must not be worth quite as much. Uh, it's in our gut. It's in our cultural DNA. For instance, what would you think if you came to me, the preacher, and you said, okay, you're the preacher. I've got a question about this biblical text. Uh, I've got a question about this spiritual uh, conundrum that I'm in, and I, I really need some great advice. I need some spiritual advice, preacher. And I say to you, hmm, that is a tough one. I'm going to have to go ask Gary Lambrick what he thinks about that. Because i got to tell you, that's, that's over my head. Um, I have no idea. What would you think about your preacher if your preacher told you, i got to go ask another preacher? Because I don't know. Yeah, well, uh, maybe he's not such a great preacher. He's got to go ask some other preacher. As if, if I can't sit down with you and answer every Bible question that you have, which you all know I can't, well, I must not be a very good preacher if he needs help from someone else. So when Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing, we say, mm, nothing? Because I think I can do some things. Apart from you, I might not be able to do as much. But nothing? And Jesus says, Nothing. Apart from me, on your own, you can do nothing. It's a struggle for us. Let's keep going. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that's thrown away, withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Jesus makes it very clear in John chapter 15 what our relationship to Him is. He's the vine. We're the branches. He makes it very clear what, what the benefits, what, what the blessings are of remaining in Him. He makes it clear what the consequences are if we do not remain in, in Christ, if we separate ourselves. He, he makes it very clear who's going to be glorified and what the results are of us remaining attached to the, to the vine. In effect, Jesus is giving us our identity. 
who we are. We're the branch. We are attached. We are connected. We are, we are grafted into the vine. And I say that because there is a sense in Christendom that <clears throat> Christians, church, is losing her identity. That there's a sense within our movement, the churches of Christ, that we are experiencing an identity crisis. And I know some of you, like me, do a lot of reading. I read a lot of things. I listen to podcasts. I'm, I'm reading blogs. I'm watching YouTube, you know, all those things. And, and I am constantly hearing, Churches of Christ, we have an identity crisis. Anybody, am I the only one that's heard that? Anybody else ever heard that? Let me tell you something. We do not have an identity crisis. We don't have an identity crisis. We have Jesus. The church globally, the church locally, Bay Area, we don't have an identity crisis. Who's your savior? I don't know. No, I'm, I'm not sure. Who's your master? Yeah, we're working on that. There's a church. We're trying to figure that out. Who's your Messiah? Uh, yeah, we're struggling with that one too. Who's your Lord? Well, we've got a committee lined up, and we're trying to figure that out. We do not have an identity crisis. We're not wondering who our Savior is, and we're not wondering who our Master is or who the Messiah is. We're not wondering who our Lord is. We absolutely know who our Lord is. There's a sign out front of our building here. Take a look when you leave this morning. It doesn't say the church of question mark. It doesn't say the church of, we don't know, we're not sure. We are the church of Christ. Our identity is Jesus. We don't have an identity crisis. So what do we have? Well, let's talk about that. Identity is defined simply as the fact of being. Who or what a person or thing is. So your identity is who you are, what you do. And you say, well, that, that's kind of fuzzy, you know. Your identity just is. Remember when Moses asked God, who should I tell them sent me? And God says, this great answer, just tell them I am. And Moses is like, I'm not sure that's going to explain a whole lot. But God is saying, my identity is just, that big. Identity is just that big. Your identity, our identity, is just that big. It is simple, and it is incredibly complex. And according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, someday we will know fully as we are fully known. So we don't have an identity crisis. Christ is ours, and we belong to him. That's it. Our identity, both individually and collectively, is the reality, is the truth, that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is our core reality. Jesus Christ is Lord. And everything else flows out of that core reality. What unifies us? connects us. What makes this whole thing work isn't that we're all alike. 
and we're all the same. Look around, we're not all alike. We don't look alike. We don't think the same. We don't act alike. We're at different places on our, our spiritual journey. What unifies us is the core reality that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's our stake in the ground. That's the hill that we die on. That's where we start. That's where we stay. You probably remember in the book of 1 John, chapter 2, John makes the uh, uh, analogy that uh, in the church there are always young men, uh, children, young men, and fathers. He's kind of using that as a metaphor for maturity. You're always going to have children, young men, and fathers in the church, which means what? We're never all going to be at the same place at the same time. We just aren't. We're never going to all be up to speed at the same time. Not if we're evangelistic. We won't be. Because nobody is at the same place at the same time. It's like having a you know, math discussion with a first grader and someone in advanced calculus. It just it doesn't work. They're not at the same place. As far as their knowledge, their maturity, their understanding, they're at very different places. We are all at different places spiritually. I hope you're in a different place spiritually than the day you were baptized. I hope you're going to be in a different place spiritually in the not-too-distant future than you are right now. We're disciples of Jesus. Part of that definition is following our rabbi. We are, we are growing closer to Jesus. We're learning. We're be, things are being revealed. Remember in Acts chapter 10, God is kind of working on the apostle Peter, and at the very same time, he's working on this Gentile by the name of Cornelius, and Peter is sent to the home of Cornelius, and when Peter gets there, Peter says, you know, my people say I shouldn't be here. I'm a Jew in the home of a Gentile. And my people say that, that that's not right. In fact, the original language is, they say it's immoral for me to be here. But in Acts chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus begins to speak. And we usually focus on one part of his statement, but I want to focus on a three-letter word that Peter uses as he is explaining where he is. Peter says this, I, look at that three-letter word, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. Peter is in the home of this Gentile. He said, you know, I, I, maybe I shouldn't be here. And then he makes the statement, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. Okay, wait. Peter, you're just now realizing this? Yep, just now. You're an apostle. Yep. You spent three years with Jesus. Yeah, I did. But that doesn't mean he's still not teaching me things. It doesn't mean that God's still not revealing things to me. In fact, Peter would say, just ask Paul. Man, me and Paul got in this big dust-up at a church picnic. And I was telling him he was wrong about this whole Jew-Gentile thing. He was telling me I was wrong. Turns out he was right, I was wrong. Who thought that was going to get into the book, right? But later on, I did say that his teaching was very difficult. So, I, you know, I feel like we're kind of even on that. But can you imagine? 
the Apostle Peter in someone's home and saying, hmm, you know that thing I said about maybe I shouldn't be here? Boy, I was wrong about that. When did you, when did you come to that conclusion, Peter? Like five minutes ago. <laughs> what? Yeah. I just, I just now realized that. God just now taught me that. I, I'm understanding something better now than I did earlier. Uh, I'm growing. I'm maturing. Our unity is not dependent on uniformity. Our oneness is not sameness. And I'm not sure why we're so uncomfortable with that. And we're, again, we're disciples. We're, we're called to be growing, to be moving, to be learning. We, we, we can't all think exactly the same and act exactly the same and articulate exactly the same. It's not biblical. It's not possible. And I know some of you right now are kind of begging for five minutes of a rebuttal, right? <laughs> Before you jump out of your pew, or you're probably starting your email right now, so let me ask you, who's your Savior? Jesus. Who's your Master? Jesus. Who's your Messiah? Jesus. Who's Lord of your life? Jesus. Me too. That's a great place to start, isn't it? We don't have an identity crisis. Jesus Christ is Lord. That is our core reality. Now listen, I am not saying, you, I hope you know me well enough to know, I am not saying that all those other commandments, all those other truths, all those other biblical you know, uh, instructions are not important. Of course they're important. I'm just saying they're important because Jesus Christ is Lord. You know, those, those commandments about discipleship, reaching the lost, taking care of each other, helping the poor, serving the needy, you know, marriages, family, finances, all those things, they are incredibly important. But all those instructions flow out of the reality that Jesus Christ is Lord. I was baptized into Christ when I was 12 years old. I've grown a lot since I, have, since I was 12 years old. I'm closer to God now than I was. My understanding is a little clearer than I was when I was 12 years old. But I've got to tell you, I can vividly remember everything about the day that I was baptized. I don't know if you can or not, but, but I can vividly remember everything about that process. I remember standing at the front of this little church in western Pennsylvania... And Ray begs, looking me right in the eye and saying, Tim, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And I said, yes, I do. And he asked, are you ready to make him the Lord of your life? And at 12 years old, I said, yes, I am. I mean it then. I mean it today. Jesus Christ is Lord. And that changes things. It changes the way we live our lives. You know, maybe you've had someone come to you and they've offered you like a, uh, 
like an opportunity, a deal, something that, that's a little bit shady. Maybe a, a way to, to forward your, you know, your career or a relationship or cut a corner. And you know, it looks good, it sounds good, but you know, it, it's kind of sketchy. And you consider doing that thing, and then you think, mm, now Jesus is Lord. And you walk away from it. Or maybe someone flirted with you at work. And on one level, it's like, you know, it's kind of nice getting that attention. And it feels kind of good having someone, you know, think that highly of me and, and show me that much attention and, and speak those kind words. But then you realize, no, Jesus Christ is Lord. And you walk away from that. Or, or maybe, maybe you've sat right here before and you've been frustrated. And you've been hurt. And you're kind of wondering, is this really for me? Oh, I've got some doubts. I've got some questions. And you think about walking away. But no, Jesus Christ is Lord. And you stay. What we do, we do. Because Jesus Christ is Lord. We don't have an identity crisis. We sometimes forget who our identity is in. And because of that, the world thinks they know our script. But remember, the script is love first. That's where God started. God started with love. Our script has to be love first. Jesus said, by this all men will know you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. We love first. That's, that's the heading of our script. And then we remember that we're not all at the same place. We're not, we don't all have the same spiritual address. And I've got to love people inside the church and out. I'm called to love people where they are, not where I want them to be. And we have to love people where they are, not where we think they should be. I have to remind myself that what makes us different is nothing compared to the immensity of what brings us together. And I think when Paul said we no longer see people from a worldly point of view, I think he meant it. I love the church. I love the Bay Area Church of Christ. I have no delusions that we're perfect. I don't expect us to have faith and hope and marriage and you know, parenting, politics. I don't expect us to have that all figured out. We're doing the best we can. We, we love God. We love Jesus. We're trying to get closer to them in, in our walk but I don't really expect us to have it all figured out. And you can call that low expectations. I call it grace. And if I can't give and receive grace here, where in the world am I going to experience grace? The Bible talks about the church being a bride. She's married to my older brother, Jesus. Jesus. 
So I'm going to love her. And I'm going to respect her. And I'm going to do everything I can to strengthen her. But it's his marriage, not mine. And if he can love her, so can I. If Jesus can love the church, so can I. And I hope you can as well. We've got a song that we're going to use as a song of encouragement. If, if as a church, as a family, we can help you in any way, we invite you to meet us down here at the front. Let's go ahead and be standing.